Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. I'm your host, Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard. And this week, I have Carrie Potts, the Senior Director of uh, Communications for ESPN. And in fact, Carrie and I had such a long, good conversation that I'm breaking this into two episodes. There are a couple of reasons for that. Um, a, it's a, it would have been really long for y'all. But the second part of our interview focuses on an assault that Carrie um, uh, experienced while she was in Italy in 2008. So because we get into the details of that a bit and, and talk about assault um, more generally, I wanted there to be a bit of a break in between the prior kind of joking around conversation we were having um, and to give it the due respect and space that it needs. I also wanted to be very cognizant um, of the fact that there are people listening to this podcast that have experienced sexual assault. Um, And I want to make sure that they aren't thrown off or, um, surprised by the content by it popping up later on in an interview so um, I will in the intro next week make sure to have plenty of warnings um, in case it's a a topic that you don't feel mentally or emotionally you're able to handle and it's completely understandable if that's the case Um, these can be very difficult conversations to have so That's why I'm doing that. And thank you all for being here again. Make sure you're rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And um, well, here we go. With me today on LTPF is Carrie Potts, Senior Director of Communications at ESPN. And Carrie has been named one of PR Week's 40 Under 40 in 2016. She received a Presidential Volunteer Service Award in 2015 and 2016 and was named ESPN's Volunteer of the Year this past May. She's the driving force behind ESPN hits such as the 30 for 30 films, SEC Network, College Game Day, and College Football Playoff. Previously, a co-captain and academic All-American, so she's really smart, on Syracuse's volleyball team. Uh, She somehow managed to complete both her undergrad degree and her master's degree in the same amount of time it took me to finish my undergrad degree. So thanks for making me feel good, Carrie. I'm here for it. Um, (laughs) Carrie's also a sexual assault survivor and advocate. She's a certified sexual assault crisis counselor. She spends many of her weekends working at a local crisis center and is if All of that wasn't enough. She somehow manages to serve on the Atlanta Hawks Diversity and Inclusion Council and was recently asked to be on the board of directors for an amazing organization called Sasha, which she'll talk about more. Welcome, Carrie. Uh, Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, you can introduce me anytime, anywhere going forward. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, listen, I mean, you've got a lot of... uh, things to mention in your intro, which is fantastic. And, um, you know, I think uh, your story is is one that's going to resonate with a lot of my listeners. 
So I appreciate you being here and and talking about your career and life uh, with with everyone. Absolutely. Tell me what you want to know. I'm an open book pretty much. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> one of the things that I typically start with um, is how did you fall in love with sports? You know, I don't even know that it was a conscious decision. I was just that kid that was constantly climbing over the fence when I was little and mm-hmm. to the point that I got away when I was like two and a half, like a half all the way up the street um, in the woods until my parents found me. And they were so terrified <laughs> by that oh that they God. put me in acrobatics. Um, and <laughs> honestly, that is what started. They said that, you know, that was the moment when they said, we cannot contain you anymore. And you have all this energy. And I was like, a, you know, they used to call me their little monkey. I just was constantly climbing. I had, oh, absurd upper body strength, um, which most women don't or females. But I was like a, a combat right. crawler when I was a baby. <laughs> so I never used my knees, just my arms, uh, like a salamander. And, um, and so, yeah, I wound up in acrobatics. And then I was a gymnast. And I just started, you know, that's how I understood life was there was always some kind of athletic involved. And I was always trying to get better at some physical feat, basically from the time I joined acrobatics on. What is acrobatics? What do they have you do? Um, well, it's not so much gymnastics, right? I mean, you're, you don't have apparatus. Um, so acrobatics yeah. was just learning how to tumble, like forward somersaults and cartwheels and back bends and back walkovers and kind of a little bit of dance, I guess, in there. But it's really for the young, young people. You're not putting, you know, a three-year-old up on the balance beam. Uh, right. That would be deadly, probably. Uh, but <laughs> teaching them how to use their body and develop their muscles, you know, balance, all those different concepts. Um, and I'm so glad I did it. I, to this day, I tell everyone who's a parent, get your kid in acrobatics or gymnastics just for a little while before it beats the total crap out of their knees like it did me um, to teach body control. Because if you want to be an elite athlete after that, body control is the thing that makes a difference. That's interesting. I, I guess everyone listening who has children just rolled their eyes at me because that's something everyone would know you could put your kids in. And I just do not. <laughs> um. Well, and it'll come up later uh, in our conversation. See. But body control, oh, it develops sure. body confidence and body sensory. Sure. And that's something obviously that came into play later in life for me. Yeah. Um, your, so how long were you in gymnastics and was that something that you thought you were going to do for a while? Oh my gosh. I was, when I go in on something, I am all consumed by it. And so I used to race to the mailbox to read, you know, the gymnast, U.S. gymnastics magazine. And then there was international gymnastics. And <laughs> I, I used to work meets. I knew every gymnast at the Olympics. I knew their names, Natalia Lashenova. I knew she did the first triple back somersault on, you know, the floor exercise. I, I knew all the ins and outs. And so I was in gymnastics until almost the end of the sixth grade. And that's a long time. If you think to how young I started, um, I got to the competitive level. Um, the problem was I was already the biggest kid in the mm-hmm. gym. And then I grew another eight inches. So I was 5'10 by the end of the sixth grade with these size 11 feet that were like grapple hooks when I was on the beam, you know, like the other kids <laughs> foot fit in the beam and mine had to kind of like <laughs> grab it sideways. Yeah. Um, it's just so big. And um, yeah, I mean, my body just said, 
you know, that you've out, literally outgrown the sport. And uh, I remember I tore my wrist at summer camp, my gymnastics camp. I'd go to every summer for four or five weeks. And the doctor was like, you know, you're so much bigger and your joints can't take kind of pounding. Um, so, yeah, I had to walk away, which was really hard. When um, when did you learn about volleyball or take a step towards playing that? It's so funny. I always describe this as my time of being like an athletic dilettante. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you get out of gymnastics where you're around all these little girls. I mean, I was the big one, but I was around all these little girls and, you know, very physically fit um, in a way most most children aren't, but even when they're like one sport specific, again, because gymnastics is like your upper body and your abs, so you're like pretty. And so I just tried every sport in my junior high. I played field hockey for three years, and I'm an asthmatic, so that was never really a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, hunched over when you're 5'10". Uh, again, it's, it's not a sport for really tall people. Um, but I loved, you know, learning that. And um, I even did cheerleading because that was like a social thing. And I thought, well, I get to tumble, right? I get to like, I'm the one that gets sure. to do the flipping. So that's a, a way to still do flipping. Um, and then I, I played basketball. Again, a running. Well, sport. you're tall. You're right. But a running sport, <laughs> a running sport that just, you know, it was hard on me. And uh, I actually just didn't understand it. You know, I kept explaining screens to me. And I'm like, yeah, but how do I know that that person's going to be there? Like, what if they go? Oh, my gosh. I didn't understand it. I was like, how? Right? I I have had this same exact. So this is amazing because every time I try and explain this to someone, I get the blankest look back. But, you know, like football, there's the X's and O's and all that. And I'm like, but but like how? Right. I never got it. I never yeah. look because I'd be like, I like tripped over my own shoe running back down the court. And so <laughs> then I wasn't in the place I was supposed to be. So how does the other team execute on a set play if I'm not physically, you know, it was right. whatever it was did not connect with me. So because I was aggressive and just like a bigger kid, I would grab the ball. I was a, a, the top rebounder. I get 18 or 20 a game. I would literally just go in, get that ball and then just hand it off and be like, go run with it. Do, do your basketball thing with it, you know. And you can't survive or sustain at a higher level of just being the rebounder. Like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe in the pros, if like you're so good at it. But so, okay, so this, it was almost like Goldilocks. Well, this bed didn't fit. Okay, so I tried this. So I get to volleyball. And this is actually really, I think it's a funny story. because I can, I can tell it and look back at how ridiculous it was. But I walk into this tryout in the eighth grade. And um, uh, they have us serving the ball over the mm-hmm. net. And, you know, we played it in gym class a few times, but so I know that I'm supposed to get the ball over the net within the white box. The court, as outlined in most high school gyms or junior highs, you know, white line. And the coach, this woman, Cheryl, said, try to get it from standing here over that net, but within that space. Well, if you can imagine, you've got all these young girls, the underhand swing, back (laughs) foot coming up, the ponytails flying. Well, I, I overhand serve. I don't ever, it never occurs to me to do an underhand. And I, I wail the ball and it goes way past the court into the opposing wall of the gym. And I keep doing, I can't, you know, I can't, part of it's my wrist is torn. So I, um, it wasn't as flexible as it needed to be to snap on top of the mm-hmm. ball to get, make it arc down. So I just keep doing it and I am getting embarrassed because I am 
failing to get this thing to land in those white lines. And the coach comes up to me and I'm just already with the, I'm so sorry. Like if you just let me really, and she's like, uh, you're good. Yeah, you're, you're fine. Because I didn't realize at the time I'm literally showing this woman, I can whale a ball of the length of the gym, right? <laughs> 15 feet to 20 feet in the air and hit the other wall and have it slam off of it. Not recognizing what that signified about my strength, my, you know, like right. <laughs> in my head, it wasn't what I was supposed to, it wasn't perfect. Um, and so it, it's kind of a funny thing. I'm, I'm sure I probably stood out from everybody in that moment, but I didn't feel that way. I felt like I was messing up. And so. Um, from that moment on, Cheryl kind of took me under her wing and just said, you're so clearly physically gifted for this sport. It's, it's amazing how you just kind of stumbled into it after failing at all these other ones. And by failing, meaning I just didn't like them. I didn't connect with field hockey. I didn't get passionate about basketball, you know. Um, yeah, sure. But yeah, I wound up with the right coach who believed in me. And yeah. And then from that, you know, off but not running. Uh, but definitely asthma. not running. Yeah, because <laughs> asthma. Yes. <we're> using, <laughs> at all moments, remember, I have asthma. Um, just exercise induced. But, you know, at that time, I was still, I still was using inhalers. You know, I had to use them a sure. lot when I was little. And now I don't even have one. So, you know, I've definitely done a lot better. That's funny. I, um, my, my path into the sport that I ended up participating in has kind of a, a volleyball bent to it. Um, in that I had wanted in middle school, like all the school, um, the high school sports teams bring their captains and coaches and they would talk to the kids in middle school so that they could choose what sport they might want to do in the fall. Um, and I'm not sure if they do that anymore, but that's what they did at the time. And I, for whatever reason, and I just have to caveat this with, I'm the most, um, uncoordinated person when it comes to like, moving and then having a, something like a ball or anything right you're saying you could have used some acrobatics yeah i mean younger. i think i got put yeah. into tap class for a minute and i'm like well that didn't help anything <laughs> not no. the same no <laughs> that would make you feel worse <laughs> it was embarrassing um yeah. <laughs> and because also you need to be coordinated in order to know how to tap yeah yeah oh yeah Brutal. so um for whatever reason this little skinny like, I don't know, barely five foot tall girl me decides I might want to play volleyball. And two of the girls that I was friends with at the time um, were like, no, no, we're going over to the cross country team because so, you know, one of them was dating the brother of the captain or something stupid. And um, at the time I was very much a little follower. Uh, I wasn't confident at all. And, and in reality, the group I was hanging out with wasn't great anyway. And so we went over to cross country and then I actually like full on just went for it and they never showed up at practice. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so that's, you know, I, I fell in love with, um, with running and I've, often said that the coach of that team and just having that team probably saved me from going down some not great roads. And um, so we like have the, the opposite stories, you and I. Yeah. Well, here's the thing with running, like nothing good ever happened when I ran when I was younger. Right. right? I mean, it always was met with this awful ending. 
So you just make that mental association the same way I had terrible food allergies when I was little. I was allergic to chocolate. I was allergic to oranges, peanuts, and anything. What? Yeah, oh, yeah. So I, I couldn't, you know, you're the, I'm the one kid in the second grade or the third grade, whatever, give me a grade. And kids are bringing in cookies and munchkins and cake. And I have a bag of substitute chocolate, Arab, called Arab. And I'm mm. eating it as if it tastes nearly as good as what everyone else is just like dying over. And, um, you know, and, and I always use all those examples to say, I always, from a young age, did not fit in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I was, I was popular with the kids. I, I was in, you know, I had friends and I was engaging and I, you know, everyone likes you if you play sports really well. But I mean, I just never felt normal. I was bigger. My feet were massive. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't eat anything that everyone else could. I couldn't run, you know? Um, and so that, I think that really shaped me weirdly, you know, later on in life, I was used to just kind of, you know, nothing ever felt the same. Like it always seemed everybody else had easy. You know? Sure. I can see that. Um, when, when you were thinking about going to college, what were, what were some of the things that you were thinking about how did you end up at Syracuse? Did you know, you know, this is all like a 30 part question, clearly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) like, did, did you know you wanted to do what you're doing now? Oh, not at all. Well, back it up, Terry. Um, (laughs) when I was little, I used to type books all the time. I used to use my mom's typewriter and write stories. I have a book that I wrote about whales. I, (laughs) to this day, I was obsessed with whales. I'm from Long Island. And so, (laughs) We have a very proud whaling history, you know, the South Shore and like Oyster Bay and Grimshaw and Whitman's writings and all that. And so I used to write poetry. Um, I was obsessed with like Renaissance poetry. And um, I, I still, I, I have a rare and used poetry book collection uh, at my house of some of the fun. Wow. Yeah, like Dunn and Keats and Gray and all that. But um, I was, so I was very into writing. And um, but I, journalism wasn't like the thing that I was thinking of. Right. Um, so I was very into writing, but I was mostly into volleyball and <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, again, obsessed. I was a sweat wiper for like USA versus China when they played at West point. Like I would wipe sweat. I was like, Oh my, oh God, my God, I get to wipe Karen Kemner's sweat. <laughs> like that's how obsessed I was. And I would go to camps in the summer, you know, five and six weeks of training with these international coaches. And so what college for me was college was about which which team was the best, which it wasn't about the school. It was about, is it Penn State? Is it USC? Is it Stanford? Is it, and the players I would watch, the NCAA players I'd read about in the volleyball magazine, et cetera. And so um, I knew I was going to get a full ride. I knew that probably at the 10th grade, I had accelerated so fast as a player that I was, you know, an all state, first team all state. Um, wow. Yeah, I still had two years to go. <laughs> Um, I was MVP of Long Island, you know, the whole scene there. And, and so I started getting those recruiting letters and stuff. And so then it became like improving myself so I could get to a better tier of colleges. Right. Um, so instead of Hofstra on Long Island, I was like, well, I'd rather, you know, I would love to look at like North Carolina or something like that. So Mm -hmm. anyhow, I get to almost my senior year, like the summer before and, um, my father lost his job. Um, he was in computers, a very volatile industry. Uh, it had like a recession in the 90s. He had lost his job for maybe a year. Um, 
my mom was a school teacher in Long Island. They're very well compensated and very stable. Like she was the anchor, but still there was a pressure there because I had a sister in college. She was at Indiana and she was out of state. They were paying for that. And here I come along and uh, I'd always been told like, look, if you don't get offered by a college, you really want to go play for because, you know, universities for volleyball teams get maybe three openings a year, a recruiting class. And they're always going to look to do in-state first. Well, if you're Oklahoma or you're Texas or whatever, you're not, you don't know about the kid in Long Island. You know, you're not tracking on or you're looking at the, your homegrown talent. And there was so much talent in California and Texas in those places. Like they didn't have to look at Long Island. So what my parents said is like, look, if your dream is to play at XYZ school, we can afford for you to walk on. Like we've saved enough money if you're a college one that you can walk on and try to earn a scholarship. But then after that, there's going to have to be loans. So all of a sudden, like that's looking like no longer an option, you mm-hmm. know, um, because of the financial situation. And so then I started to feel a lot of pressure. Um, so I'd, already, I'd applied to Illinois. I applied to Oklahoma and went on a recruiting trip, my first recruiting trip. Um, I was looking at Houston, Indiana, that kind of thing. And I was never going to be their first choice, um, but they were very interested. and. Um, I suddenly had to kind of like let that go and really look at who was offering me at home. And I didn't want to go to a Catholic university. I wasn't Catholic. I was a mm-hmm. Protestant. And I just thought all of a sudden I'm going to go to college and have Jesuit priests in my dorm. Like what? Like, <laughs> no. Right. Um, so it's like BC was out and Georgetown. And, you know, you just start going through the list. I'm playing in my high school tournament um, in New York and the Syracuse coaches come up to me and and they just said, you know, have you thought about us? I'm like, no, I did not think about staying in New York. Like, that is the last thing I would like to do. <laughs> I mean, honestly, can I not, can a girl get out of New York State? Like, I mean, I've done all this work. Can I get, a, can I get my ass out of New York State? Like, the dream is you go play in some, like Oklahoma, right? You go somewhere where you're totally like a novelty to everyone and everything's new and cool. I mean, that's what college would be. And I made the mistake of having this conversation in front of my mother. And they said, well, what do, what do you want to do? And I said, I think I want to be a journalist. Not knowing that Syracuse's mm-hmm. like journalism program was so good. Again, I wasn't looking at journalism programs. I was just looking at volleyball teams because I was such a good student. I was like, I'll be fine wherever I go. You know, I'm, yeah. I'll make it work. Well, my mother's like, oh, really? Yeah. And so, like next thing you know, I'm on a plane to Syracuse like uh, five days later. You know, uh, they're flying me up there for a recruiting trip and, uh, and they offered everything plus book, which was really nice. Mm -hmm. And I was their number one. And I just felt, I just wanted to resolve it because I knew my dad felt bad. Um, I felt I was watching the longer it went on, the more opportunities were slipping away. Sure. And so, yes, Syracuse was not my first choice. I wasn't planning on it. I wasn't planning on a lot of things, uh, but that's how I wound up at Syracuse. And um, the good thing is my AP credits were accepted. So I entered as a sophomore, which was also attractive that I could get that. I could expedite my, my degrees. So that was the other part of it. So, yeah, so that's how I wound up there. I, first of all, I can't even imagine being able to get through the programs that you got through and the time that you got through them. It took me five years to get through UMass with my undergrad. I will say I have two undergrad degrees, but still it's not the same as an undergrad and a grad degree. 
It was a lot. And let me tell you, I was also in the honors program. And so I entered as a sophomore. You know, I didn't get to do all the weed out classes like kids do. Mm-hmm. You know, like like the first year kid, like they're all like, you know, rolling out of bed and showing up and barely paying attention. I'm I'm already running with the honors kids in the year two. And I think the first five weekends I was away for volleyball, oddly. And I would have to go make up these classes or, you know, TA hours at like 7 a.m. to try to, the following week, to try to make up for what I missed. And I had a class on religion that just kicked my butt. <laughs> I don't oh, know gosh. what. I mean, that was the one class. I mean, I, I remember my first year, my first semester GPA was a 3-2. Mm-hmm. I had never seen those two numbers next to each other in a GPA. Like I was, a, oh, so I was upset. And I also knew I only had six semesters to have a GPA. You know, my, sure. I, I don't get that extra. I don't get the filter out the bad one. And so, and to me, a three, two was bad because I was on an academic scholarship as well as athletic and I needed to keep a three, four. And so I said, holy crap, I'm now like the delinquent. Like, you know, that's, that's how weird that adjustment was. It wasn't like it was easy, um, but what I got the message was I was not going to be able to slack in any semester, you know, and I was going to have to get a handle on how I was using my time. And so that was a really important lesson. And I never screwed up like that again. I, I, I graduated a magna cum laude, which was nice. Um, I know if I had two extra semesters to put in, I think I would have done better. Oh, my God. But you just I just didn't get that option. You know, I'm laughing just because I know how terribly I did my first year. Okay. And, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, to each his own. I mean, just, again, I mean, it may sound really, oh, so smart, but I, I missed out on a lot of stuff that other, right. You know, my story of college looks, sounds again, totally different. I, that's what I was about it's to just, say. <laughs> yeah. Just like not, uh, I never really had the crazy stories. I didn't have the, the you know, you have all the, um, all the drama of like that first year dorm, mm-hmm. right? Everyone's trying to make their way in their friend group. Then there's boys and all. I was living in a dorm of upperclassmen, honors. <laughs> oh my gosh. And so I felt like, and then when I graduated, and then I went to grad school, like the next month I stayed over to Syracuse that summer. And so now I'm a senior technically. Seniors on my team and my people I knew, they're all just like coasting, right? partying. I'm in grad school getting my ass kicked, you know, and trying to make up everything is group work. You great, you'll get graded on group work. Yeah. And so I'm on these buses to Pittsburgh. Versus, so now I'm like, I'm behind already. I haven't even. And so again, I didn't get to really do a lot of social stuff because I was, and you know, my professors let you call them by name, you know, right. and have us over to drink wine. Like my other teammates had no idea what I was talking about. So I just always felt like I just lived in a different space and it wasn't as fun as theirs, but it was also cool. Like I felt like I had really cool, uh, you know, things that uh, underclassmen didn't get to experience that last year. So, Well, it sounds like it also gave you more sense of self as well. You, because you weren't dealing with some of that drama and some of the, um, I always skated on that. I always avoided that stuff, man. Even in high school when I was playing club, I was gone all the time on the weekends playing in Florida or Las Vegas. And so I would come back on Mondays. And again, I had plenty of friends, pretty popular kid, but I would just sit there in homeroom and listen to like 
so-and-so was so-and-so's boyfriend mm-hmm. and then they played you know spin the bottle and I wound up in the club and I'd be like oh sounds terrible like I'm so glad I missed that <laughs> um just a way to get out of that yeah I just I got to avoid all of that um you know the downside is again we'll get to it later I didn't really have much experience dating or having any confidence or self-esteem in that area because I was never really able to do that kind of Sure. Um, when you you graduated and you ended up at the NCAA for a couple of years, and it seems like that was one of the pivotal moments in you know pushing your career towards this direction that you've been in. Can you talk about your time there and and some of the things that you were doing? For sure. Um, I was finishing up my master's um, at Nike, so I was in Portland. And I had nowhere to go. I thought I would wind up working at Nike, but they had like no opening. They just laid off like maybe 1,300 people uh, in the spring. So that was not looking positive. And so I remember desperately just searching my last few weeks of my internship, just looking for jobs. And I applied USA Wrestling, um, mm-hmm. you know, communications coordinator, uh, University of Colorado, you know, sports information, uh, you know, copy editor at, New Times of Denver. My parents lived in Colorado at the time. That's where they retired. And, you know, no room at the end. Couldn't get myself arrested. Yeah. One rejection letter after another. And I'm going, holy crap. I, you know, I would think I would look good on paper at least. If you, you know what I mean? At sure. least get my, no. So um, I did apply for the NCAA and then I hear nothing. And I moved back to Colorado after my internship. Nike keeps me on to do freelancing, which is fantastic. They gave me money, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I start to resolve the fact that I'm going to work at the Barnes and Nobles down the street to at least just get my feet going, just start getting employment of some kind, you know. And um, the NCA comes calling, and I knew from the minute I talked to the guy, the hiring manager, I just got this thinking feeling that I was going to get the job. And I say thinking feeling because never in my dreams or nightmares had I imagined I would live in the middle of Indiana. <laughs> for my first job out of school. I just, yeah, I, I know it sounds, whoever's listening, whoever's from the Midwest is probably like, what a bitch. But, but no, I really, <laughs> sorry. when you're from Long Island, the dream is New York City. Yeah, right. I was going to be an editor. My undergrad was magazine editor. I was going to be a magazine editor at Condé Nast. You know, new house at Syracuse is a new house family owned Condé Nast. That's where everybody was going to go. I never got to do those internships because I was on scholarship playing and I, I couldn't do it like during the semester or anything. My summers, I had a train. And um, then my parents retired to Colorado and kind of took out the whole plan of, oh, I'm going to live at home and then, you know, commute into the city for my totally underpaying job as an editorial assistant. Um, I never thought I would live in Indiana and I... I remember my friends all sending me these like bereavement cards, like <laughs> and I cried the whole car right there. I cried. My father called my mother like, Teddy, I don't want to do with us. She won't stop crying. And I was like, <laughs> you know, um, cause I was like, not only that, I was going to be somewhere so foreign and alone. And yeah. I always have thought, you know, I, I, you get to your job, you hang, you see your friends, you'll do stuff. In the- no, no one I knew was living there. So, I got to the NCA and it was what lovely. They just all moved from Kansas City to this new, beautiful new office right on the river. And I was there for three and a half years. I was, I wrote the first volleyball rule book, which was an amazing honor. 
I was a publications editor and a communications coordinator. So I handled playing rules committees for mm-hmm. like tennis and field hockey, but volleyball had not yet been an NCA manual. Uh, it was a rule book that was for use by high schools, elementary schools, and colleges. And the problem with that were colleges like the Stanford, which has excellent facilities, were being held to the minimum standards of like an elementary school gym. And uh, in terms of ceiling height, like the minimum height at that time, a gym could be 15 feet and a team would have to play there. Oh, God. And right. And so if you're Stanford, I mean, usually you don't come across an opponent with that issue, but it's possible in the mid-level D1, you'd go against the school and the school would say, well, yeah, but 15 feet, we meet the standard. Well, that's terrible for any kind of volleyball. So we decided we had to take it in-house. It took two years. But from that book, that's when the the Libro Mm -hmm. um, player. The, the backcourt player was introduced. The let serve, which is now the ball can hit the net and still roll over and not be, you know, the end of the play. Um, it was pretty groundbreaking stuff. And I, I enjoyed some of the things I got to do there. It's just that it was a very uh, restrictive place. I have a lot of personality and I didn't like the hierarchy, the strict regard for hierarchy. The um, It's kind of like a kiss the ring kind of atmosphere. Sure. <laughs> And I just, it, it didn't fit me. It was like being in a straight jacket. And so I had great bosses who let me do whatever project I wanted to get in on, but I had nowhere to go. Uh, I had nowhere to go. They didn't pay well. Mm-hmm. And I, I just started looking. I, I was able to see that if I'm not going to grow here, I have nowhere to go, then I better start looking. And so it took me a year and a half, but then, you know, yes, yeah, I, I saw the opportunity. That's how that happened. And you've been there ever since, right? So since 2003? Yes. And the good thing about work, having worked at Van is some of my closest friends that are college deputy ADs or ADs or commissioners all worked with me when I was 22 at the NCAA. So the best part about that experience was I got to meet the next generation of groundbreaking women, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, athletics administrators. And yet I got out and got to build a career that was more suited to me. Right. You know? And then now it's really been great to see their success to be able to support them. But also when we do business, you know, to have that relationship, right? You're not, I'm not even in programming, but I know the commissioner of the America East, you know, for two, almost two decades now, you know, from back when we were at the NCAA. So uh, in that regard, too, it's been helpful. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think it's now that you, the majority of your work focuses on college. Um, sports. Yeah. Yeah. I oversee college sports PR now. I didn't always. I started at ESPN with NFL mm-hmm. and NBA. And then we had a fledgling unit called EOE, ESPN Original Entertainment. And for anyone listening who might remember, it was like the show's like dream job where we like found the next sports center anchor. Um, we would have this like contest. Uh, my call, Anish Shroff, who's calling tonight's Georgia Tech game here in town. He was a dream job season two finalist, maybe winner. And um, poker, World Series of Poker. Oh, right. And then we had some ridiculous shows like uh, Tuesday Night Bowling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really got put through the paces. I was trying to promote shows that no sports writer wanted to talk about. But I love the creativity and the things we tried to do. And mm-hmm. we, had a, we had a block of shows that were called Block Party. And it was like Funk Master Flex. Or, oh my gosh. Yeah, he was, he was, <laughs> yeah. So Funkmaster, so Flex, we call him Flex, he would pimp rides. And we had Streetball, 
Uh, <laughs> and, and then there was Barbershop, which was hosted by Jermaine Dupree. Mm-hmm. And Most Deaf hosted this two-hour block. And then the other show was called It's the Shoes, hosted by Babito Garcia, who's a DJ, DJ Cucumber Slice, New York. <laughs> and we would, oh, listen to this. This is how dope my job was. People don't probably think I'm. First of all, DJ Cucumber Slice. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> but they think I'm, people can think I'm stiff and boring, but um, I would go into the sneaker collections of Missy Elliott, Damon Dash. We would go to their places and go in their closet to see their sneaker collection. The sneakerhead culture, uh, soul collector, those magazines, mass appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else did I go to? Russell Simmons. Wow. I was living the life. Yeah. I was having the coolest, coolest time. It was the producers on it were Dave Jacoby, who's now got his own show with, Jay, uh, out in LA, a podcast. Um, he does his show with Jalen Rose and, uh, really got to just really do some cool stuff. And then we started with film acquisitions and documentaries. We did scripted. Oh, right. uh, scripted shows, Bronx is Burning with John Turturro and Oliver Platt. We got SAG, SAG nominations. I had to go to the SAG Awards. Oh, had to. Yeah. I, well, yeah. I mean, it was, <laughs> it's intimidating. So you're, Ooh, what are, you know, I have to get a dress. And then I remember I got this dress from like Haney's Laundry, maybe. Mm-hmm. And thinking, I mean, it was expensive for me at the time. And then I see this actress from ER walks down the carpet in it. And I was like mortified. <laughs> so, oh, we're doing the thing where we have the same dress. And then someone's like, Carrie, no one's looking at you. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Nobody cares about me. <laughs> but it was cool. And, well, and, this, and then I started with the SBs mm-hmm. and ESPN films. And there you go. And this was all in the heyday of, you know, when reality TV was really just kind of coming into its own, right? Yes. Yes. Dream Job was absolutely that where people got to vote. You know, American Idol was still new. That concept. Yeah. So this was one where you could vote at the end of the night for who's, whose spot reads of whatever, you know, challenge we gave the contestants. And then there was like elimination, that kind of thing. And we had Beg, Borrow, and Deal, which was a, not a takeoff of um, Survivor. Um, or, well, maybe not even Survivor. I guess the one where they can go around the world. But these, these groups had to go around the mm-hmm. world, basically, performing different athletic feats. And, um, yeah, so it was great to be in on all that. I, we would shoot in Hell's Kitchen. Dream job is Sunday night late. Mm-hmm. And I eventually was able to get them to move me to New York because I was living this ridiculous life, you know, shooting in New York all the time and then driving back up to Bristol to turn around and go to the office a few hours later. And it was just t- very taxing on me. And I knew, realized all the media I needed to know were in New York right. doing drinks and happy hours and dinners. And I just was not as effective. And so I moved down to New York and that's what I did for six or seven years. We launched ESPN Films and then we did the first Slate of 30 for 30. Uh, film festivals, Tribeca, partnership. I was definitely, I was like a Hollywood publicist, film publicist and in, within ESPN. It was a very different life. Again, totally the only person doing that. <laughs> um, which, you know, our Monday meetings, people are talking about, well, the NBA telecast last night got this rating and, you know, Sunday Night Football got this. And I'm over there saying, well, you know, our World Series of Dart show got- <laughs> is so ridiculous, so ridiculous. <laughs> what, yeah. um, what, what was it that you were doing in your positions? You know, so one of the things that I try and do with this podcast is to show all the varying types of roles and jobs that yeah. people can have in sport, because we always we're very narrow when we think about it. 
And um, so can you talk a little bit about what what responsibilities you had, have, you know, and and what what that all entailed? Sure. Well, first of all, I think with PR, it it remains to this day one of those things I could tell people a million times and they'll still ask me like when I'm going to be on air. Um, or if I, or if I wrote this, did you write that article? And I just, I, I feel like I, so I used to be able to say, uh, you know, Debbie Mazer on Entourage mm-hmm. that, you know, she's their publicist. Like that, that, that's who I am. Or, right. uh, Allison Janney on West Wing, you know, that's sort of what I do. And so then that would, oh, okay. Even my parents. So, you know, it, it finally took them like 10 years before they were able to tell their friends what I do. Um, I, I am a communication strategist at a baseline. It, how, how are we taking this content that we've created at ESPN or inherited or acquired and, and getting it into the public se- sector in the way that we want it framed? Who is going to write about this? How are we going to present it? In what cadence? Mm-hmm. How are we rolling it out? Uh, how are we measuring you know, success in doing that? And that's really what I still do to this day, no matter how much the technology's changed, et cetera. Everything I think about when I, we, we create a show or an idea or we have a really cool feature, who is the writer or the outlet that should get the first look at that and will reach this audience that we've determined is the audience we want to have this resonate with? Mm-hmm. And so there is strategy to it. There's strategy from knowing what, who reads what magazine, watches what TV, uses what technology. And then trying to maximize awareness and interaction with it, whether it's people viewing it, ratings, uh, responses, that kind of thing. Um, and I do that with people too, raising profile of our on-air people. Our, our production team will say, so-and-so really is a star and we would love to get her or him in front of people more so they, they know who, who he or she is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you try to create touch points. As a brand, at a brand like ESPN, so people feel like ESPN is their own, just the way they feel really protective <laughs> about game day, and always telling us what they want us to do with it. You want them to feel that way about as much as our brand and our people. Um, so that's my job. And but I would say that's the, the ideal scenario. That's best case scenario. Sixty percent of my job is just putting okay. out fires. I'm like kind of like a firewoman. Um, it's it's everything mm-hmm. from we have the wrong graphic used during a game it, it seems innocuous but if you use the like michigan state logo during oh, a michigan game, <laughs> oh, oh yeah i mean oh you better batten down the hatches and get ready for a, a rocking afternoon of emails or and a bad calls and chiron outrage. or whatever chiron chiron yes chiron absolutely uh, uh announcer calls the wrong player or says or has a hot mic <laughs> and maybe they pick up a conversation where they're ripping someone or sure. cursing Oh, hot mics happen all the time. Uh, or, you know, you have how much per- personnel, how many personnel do we have on the college side? There's always something There can be an arrest sure. that happens, a public incident, somebody videotapes someone drink. I mean, all sorts of stuff. And because of the volume of content that we have in the college space and the number of people, it's always something. It's just, it's, and it's human error. I mean, we're human. People forgot that. They think it's like human error. Again, someone... You know, we lose the feed of something because someone hit the wrong button. Um, two years ago, we, at the end of the Clemson-Notre Dame overtime win by Clemson, our, someone hit a button in transmission, and in the middle of the post-game interview, everyone at home at one in the morning was watching our sports center anchors play on their iPads, not realizing oh they're on live television, 
for 12 seconds. They're sitting, the cameras are on, just in the middle of like Dabo Sweeney talking about how they won. The cameras swing up there, 12 seconds, you see Kevin Connors and Dan Barrett just like staring at, playing on their iPads. And then it kicks back finally. And, and from something as innocuous as that, the Clemson fan base was absolutely irate. They thought we cut off Dabo because we don't like him because he was mentioning Jesus. You know, he was thanking Christ and his father. And, and that just happened to be when it cut out. And so they believe this was like a dedicated flight on. Their you face. are the liberal media. Uh, well, that's the kind of stuff that like, yeah, someone will sink in and you can't you're, you're just not allowed to be human right. anymore. And so for that days and days and days, it was just a, um, trying to get that message out. Like, hey, at the same time, not taking the person who made the mistake and putting them out on a stake and saying, oh, look at this, this girl did right. this and she's horrible. Like, it's managing things like that. So my job is managing issues and always trying to give the right information, whether you want to hear it or not. And the answers are never as sexy uh, as people would like them right. to be. I mean, who wants to hear like, well, actually, Joe is drinking a Diet Coke and knocked over the can and uh, it hit the button. And that's why we lost 12 seconds of the posting interview. Right. I mean, that's no one wants to hear that. Everyone wants to hear that it was like dedicated conspiracy pre-planned. Well, right? and Pepsi doesn't want to hear it in particular if they're the ones sponsoring right. the game. <laughs> right. I mean, it's always something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I, I always say I wish, you know, like. Um, Wizard of Oz, you know, that photo pulls back the curtain and it's just like this older guy <laughs> with some, yeah. you know, everyone's like, oh, the wizard, right? Well, that's how I feel. If they, they really understood it. A lot of stuff at ESPN is, is something like that. Not that we don't make magic out there and I think we do a lot of great things, but at the end of the day, it's just people and we are flawed and we hit the wrong button, we drop our phone, we trip over a cable in the truck and knock out a few. Right. <laughs> You only handle anything related to college, right? So some of the other things that ESPN has been dealing with recently are not things that you would be involved in. No, but as a senior director in the department, I'm part of the team that helps execute, you know, because of the relationships sure. I have with writers. I have good relationships with writers that write about a, a host of things, not just college, you know, national writers. Um, sure. So I would be part of, you know, the deployment so to speak, of whatever information we're trying to get out there. And, and also the ideation. I mean, our leader is really, Chris Lapaka and the senior staff really do ask us to participate in ideation and, and, and solutions and resolutions, that sort of thing. So, yes, I'm not, I, I handle directly the Robert Lee stuff, but, um, you know, anything as of past that, not directly, but I have been asked for my mm -hmm. opinion on or, uh, I've never felt like I couldn't provide, you know, some suggestions, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, you know, two of the cool things that you've mentioned that you work on, the ESPYs, you know, you guys just created that in the last, like, I don't know, six, 15. seven no, years? 15. 15? Has it been that long? Yes, because my first ESPYs was 2005. God, I'm getting old. And that was when it was at, yeah, 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 no. That's when it was at the uh, Kodak Theater. Mm -hmm. And before that, it was in Las Vegas. Before that, it was in New York. So I joined when it was at Kodak. Now it's been at the Nokia in downtown. When mm -hmm. I first joined, it was up at um, Kodak right there by the Chinese, Chinese, Vans Chinese Theater, you know, the Walk of Fame and everything. 
Sure. Um, and so I did that for, I want to say six or seven shows. And then I've come out twice to help them in, you know, the last six or seven years, they've had me come out for various things they need assistance with. And sometimes it's like, we have a carpet we need for one of our parties surrounding the show. And can you come do that? So yeah, I'll go do that. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, kind of it's going to be an interesting, um, part of your job to be oh, at right. that. I will write a book. <laughs> yeah, I was, let me tell you, for the seven years I was entertainment, I, I ran our red carpet. It was our red carpet person. Oh my gosh. So the whole culture around celebrity mm-hmm. and the people that are around them, I would only be exposed to it at those moments. Because once the red carpet for the NFL draft was over or the red carpet for the ESPN magazine party at the Super Bowl or the red carpet for either the ESPYs, which is like two days of parties, Right. style studios and carpets, I would retreat back, thankfully, into my home and say, I will never do that again. And then, you know, so maybe three or four times a year, I was dipping into that, uh, never had a stay in it. I was not long for celebrity stuff beyond the few days and weeks I would work on it each year. Um, and I think it's because even though athletes, yes, they're rich and famous, a lot of them still, there's still a, there's still a familiarity for me with them that mm-hmm. I identify with. And there's kind of just a matter of factness and an ease. And when you get to celebrity, it's everything from, it's just so, it's so different than athletes. But most of us athletes, we will sit on the floor and eat our lunch in between games, right? Sleep right. on our bags and recycle our socks, maybe not shower, whatever. And it's different. The precision, the micromanaging in, in the world of celebrity was just very unfamiliar for me. And I was always uncomfortable. I wonder if there's also like that created distance, right? And without yeah. being able to have that familiarity. You know? For sure. No, and for you sure. have to act differently almost. Yeah, it is. But here's the thing, regardless if it's an athlete or a celebrity, I mean, our, our, one of our hosts was Justin Timberlake. And I remember being at our shoot with him and he kept us waiting a bit. Um, But I remember just shooting threes with him on the basketball court in this high school gym that we were shooting uh, photos and like commercials. And in that moment, we're just normal people shooting threes, you know, trying to sink the ball. Uh, and And what I've learned is if you can find a way to just, you do your job unapologetically, you don't defer to them in any kind of, once you establish this power differential, I mean, clearly I'm aware of the power differential between me and Justin Timberlake, but (laughs) right. I mean, clearly there's many levels, but I'm there to do my job. And in that moment, I'm the expert at what I'm doing there. Right. And so as long as you go in strong and confident and then speak to them, I need you to stand here. Well, can you be there? Nope. I want that. There's no issue. The minute they can sniff it out, the minute you are Mr. Timberlake, did you, well, I, you know, timid, your voice goes up an octave, like all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Everything's off. Everything's completely different and you can't get your work done. Um, so I've learned that. And that's the good thing that I, I did learn that that is kind of a universal truth, whether it is super celebrity or sports athlete. I mean, LeBron hosted one year, um, mm-hmm. SBs, and I spent time with him and I, I got on fine with him to the point that I walked him down the carpet. I had the trust of his <laughs> people to do that during show night. Um, yeah, so I just, I did learn how to talk to folks regardless of who they were to get my job done, which is an important lesson I think, for anyone. Sure. Um, 
you know, this kind of dovetails with a question I, I asked people online if they had questions that they wanted me to ask you. And on Twitter, um, Ms. Randall at Ms. Randall EGHS asked, how did she, you, build ethos in an industry so dominated by men? And that was pretty much also another question, you know, suggestions, advice for women in male dominated industries. Um, so how, how did you get that confidence and, and what have you done that has been helpful, you think, in that arena? Well, I, I always thank Mr. Ketchum, my, uh, elementary school gym teacher. Mr. Ketchum, uh, realized how athletically gifted I was and thought it was ridiculous that I was having to do the presidential fitness exam for girls. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was just blowing, you know, that like requires you to do one pull up and I'm doing 50, you know? So he always made me play with the boys. He always held me to their standards mm-hmm. for the fitness exam, for the how fast I ran the mile. I was always asked to do those tasks. And when it came to dodgeball or kickball, I was always the first one picked. And so I lived naturally, existed with boys. I just, I, my experience was coexisting with them as teammates and partners, right? For sports in school, right? Which is still a big thing. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a big social thing. And I got used to them accepting me. They accepted me. That's the thing. Boys didn't give me a problem. Probably because I could beat the crap out of them because I was the biggest (laughs) kid until, yeah, I was the biggest kid until seventh grade. And so I did get in fistfights. I definitely had a few kids picking on me that it was like one of them liked me and like, so he'd like punch me kind of thing. Um, yeah, I definitely got jumped a few times in the playground, but I always won. And I remember one of our recess women, <laughs> she knew they were fighting me, but she let, she didn't come over because she knew I was going to win. And later on, she told my mom, my mom said, why didn't you stop the fight? And she goes, because your daughter was going to beat them. And I thought it was an important lesson that the boys learned that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Can you imagine that happening now? Right, right. So when you look back, you could say, I naturally lived in that space. I was used to being around guys and commanding their respect Mm -hmm. and, you know, speaking their language. And so, but I never felt like I didn't belong there. And I had all these people around me that never made me feel like I didn't belong there, which is so unusual. I, I know that. I under, I think it is amazing that Mr. Ketchum had the foresight and in 1984, 85, to, to do that and say, no, you're going to be with them because you're as good as them. In fact, you're better and you need to be recognized and held to this standard. And that is so ahead of his time. Sure. And so I don't know that how a lot of women have that experience. I can't really give you a ton to help, but other than say that, if you act like you belong and you really feel it, you exude it. Sure. And if you don't ask, if you're not looking to kiss the ring, you don't do this, you know, you, you, the confidence of just owning your space of, of saying, Hey, you may be great at that, but I'm really good at this. You know, I remember playing, you know, playing hoops with Justin's shooting the shot and I'm going, this guy can sing and he's got money, but he doesn't have a spike of volleyball. I, I can beat him <laughs> on that. I know. And it sounds ridiculous, but I always say to people, you will always be better than someone at something, even if someone who's really good at one thing. 
And you should always have confidence. You, should, you don't compare yourself or feel like down because you can't do that one thing. There's so many other things I could do that would be better. And, and that's how I learned to look at it. And so you get into this male space and both in how I interact with men, how I talk to them and the, what I will and will not allow has been with me since I was six or seven. Mm-hmm. And um, not to say that I have not been a victim of you know, sexual harassment. I've definitely experienced that several times in my career. Um, but I, I don't think it hit me as hard. Um, I was always able to look at them like they were the problem. It never made me feel bad about myself kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I think I, it was able, it gave me an extra layer of like looking at it externally than, than internalizing it. And I think that's why even when I was attacked, I recognized quickly it wasn't me. It was him. Right. And, uh, I, again. I think it all has to go back to how I was conditioned from a very young age. Yeah. And I think, you know, you and I have talked about this. I think a lot of that is from how you were raised and, and maybe because of the, um, uh, I think some people can be raised in, in a manner in which they're shamed a lot just for, for anything. And, and that will often shape who they are what are you know what were some of the things that you did to establish those boundaries i mean we're we're living in this hashtag me too time right now um with you know everything that's um come to light in hollywood which i don't think a single person is surprised by but people are talking about it more often and and one of the things that you hear often is um some you know somebody didn't set a boundary or they did and they continued to and um one of the things i always think too is you know you teach other people how to treat you and yeah for sure i think part of it is fake it till you make it and what i mean by that is you know i have a very tough exterior i've been told that i'm intimidating (laughs) but i actually if you know me i'm i'm a softie you know, I baby talk my dog. I'm actually really sensitive. Um, mm-hmm. Every report from my, I have it on my, my, my fight back woman site, but when I, I found some of my early report cards from kindergarten, when I was helping my parents move from Colorado to Arizona a few years ago, and it says, you know, very shy. She's really <laughs> very mm-hmm. shy, very sensitive to the needs of others and stands up and protects the other children when they're having low moments, you know. Um, so the windows into who you are, you can very much see in those types of documents, right? Um, but I think that um, I learned that I could be one way, and I saw the response that I got to it, and it, mm-hmm. got, it was positive. It, the result was positive, and I didn't have to give up who I actually am. Um, and what that means is so in sports with the media I deal with in the space that I'm in I'm I know what works I know what works I know what works with with men I know what works with them into getting my job done and then I also know how to be back to who I am when I'm amongst my friends and privately um I just think that happens over time you know I just I just think it happens over time I can't tell you that my first job when I was at the NCAA that I was I had it super figured out in fact, what usually happens is 
you have a few bad experiences and you they teach you what the boundary is, right? right. Especially when you step into a place that's super hierarchical and, and rigid. You know, my I have a very casual sense of who I am and, and the way I talk. And they let me know, oh, you have to be super formal on this, this, this. you know? And okay, right. so you establish that boundary, but you know what? I don't like that. So apparently my boundary is not your boundary and I got to get out of here. Right. So you learn. It's, it's not an immediate thing, but it's, it's just kind of a constant uh, recalibration as you get older. Do you feel that you've had to um, show yourself to be really tough and have that almost armored oh, yeah. exterior yeah. in sport? Yeah, for sure. And I think actually it was the SBs that really did it. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I was a nice kid before that experience. Um, <laughs> I was. The SBs ruined you. <laughs> they did. Well, I was not used to people talking so aggressively to me and so mm. nasty. Just out the gate, like out of the gate, the uh, power play, the trying to put you over a barrel, you know, the mm. threat, that kind of stuff. Uh, I, the first time it happened, the first year, our host's publicist was, oh, I'll never forget that conversation. I, I held my own on the phone and then I went in the bathroom and cried for like an hour. Um, it, it was like a, uh, you know, what they do to you in the, you know, in the, the steel training, they, you're in the ice water right. and you're trying to break you down and you're like trying to, and each time you get a little better at it. And so that's what it was like for me. Uh, it was definitely learned that I will, do you know as long as I believe in what I'm trying to accomplish it comes from an honest place right I'm not trying to do something deviant when I go fight for x y or z there's a solid business reason and I feel justified you can't beat me you're not gonna you're not gonna (laughs) shake me but if it's unpleasant if it's if it's a scary interaction I've had some arguments with guys just towering over me screaming in my face that just made me feel threatened physically um but one, my point, and then I walk away and cry in the bathroom for an hour. You know, I just, I learned yeah. like that's how that's going to be. Now, I'm never going to change. I'll never not do the crying on the back end if it's something that shakes me, you know. Sure. But I know not to, you know, I know how to be in the setting where I need to accomplish a certain path. How do we change that dy- dynamic? Well, we get more you women. Know, like- we get more women in the places of decision making yeah. and authority. and. See, what, here's the thing is, even when a woman does make it in, they tend to be the kind of woman that is rewarded for displaying masculine uh, traits or, or traits that men find uh, valid. So right. uh, I, you know, I'm always, the, 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 I just read an article the other day on the loophole woman. It's the woman that's like, oh, I was never harassed. And I find men to be, blah, blah, blah. you know, it's like, well, how nice for you. Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah. Your voice is really <laughs> helping everyone. Um, and I find I can think of a couple of women right, right now who so you want to be you like, just please walk, just please be quiet. Um, but <laughs> I find that and through my career, when someone has said to me, uh, you know, you're very passionate or, you know, or emotional or whatever in how you handle this, it's because that person is extremely reserved and finds that to be more valid a behavior, which is typically how a more masculine kind of trait, right? And what are we seeing now? Studies show that emotional leadership and emotional intelligence is the best kind of leadership. Uh, look at all the, the way our world is right now. Who's made all the decisions? 
<laughs> right? I mean, I always say to women, the bar is so low. I mean, how low could the bar be? To let I me, mean, who's it's... afraid to let us in a leadership position? My God, how much, I mean, the world is rotting. We're uh, constantly at war. You know, I, look at where we, how, who can make an argument that giving us the reins, as, giving us a shot is going to be worse? Um, well, you know. and part of the problem is we hold ourselves to a higher standard, right? We like yeah. we, we, uh, allow perfect to be the yeah. enemy of good enough. And so, because we don't think we have all of the qualifications, we hang back when really we all just need to have the confidence of a mediocre white dude. Right. I, I love that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like the guy that applies for the job. He has maybe two of the qualifications of the 10 and he's like, yeah, sure. It's, it's the guy that asks about the woman that's like, you know, a, a Ford model. And he, you know, right. uh, he's got the confidence of a, you know, a, a movie star. Um, I don't know, but again, there, there's no limitations for them in the way we are. We all know this. I mean, Gina Davis has done amazing work, and anyone listening to this, go, go look up her site um, on just gender and media uh, foundation and just the representation or lack thereof of women. And you know, see it to be it. If you look at a show. You know, one represents 18% of the characters, you know, uh, they're never in the leadership. They're always the sister, the girlfriend, the nag, you know, every commercial, the woman is doting mother, girlfriend, nag, you know, uh, right. all this messaging we have, we are trying to figure it out as we go along. Cause we don't really have a lot of guideposts. And I think that's yeah. what I've done. And, um, you know, I'm sure I always hear this when I sit with my guy friends. Cause you know, I don't, I really don't date a ton and I just find that, uh, and I'm not like super aggressive, you know, in my personality when I'm dealing with a guy or whatever, but what my male friends have said to me is, but what they think you're going to be like because of what you're the industry you're in because of your accomplishments, because maybe they've seen you speak once or twice, like there's an intimidation factor. So I think it hurts men on the backside because they're not used to women like us in their space and they, and they sure. miss out. You know, I, oh, absolutely. They missed out too. They missed out on being enriched by having a woman that's going to be their partner and their support and not someone that's got placing a heavy burden expectation on their shoulders in the way that they might have been taught that that's what, how that's going to work, how that dynamic works. Sure. And I think that there, you know, it's also the not feeling strong enough in themselves to realize that they don't have to be providers. I think right, it's unfair. That, I think it's really unfair what we, yeah, what, what is placed on the way we are divided up the minute we're born based on our, you know, our gender or sex at the time, you know, the way we're assigned. They say gender is learned. They mm -hmm. say that in, it's learned. It's not like you're born into the world and you're inherently like, well, I'm going to be um, a teacher, a nurse. Or whatever, and that and, and boys go, well, I'm gonna be a doctor, or a lawyer, you know, it's, that's not how that works. It's what it's the lack of seeing right. the roles that we could aspire to in all the ways that media touch our life, in our personal circles, who our parents are, you know, if our parents are super, um, mm -hmm. you know, into their religious belief, you know, if you're Catholic, you don't see a woman <laughs> ever leading the, a church, right? Um, I, I grew up Lutheran, so right. I was used to a female pastor. Um, and so it's, it's things like that. If you just don't, you keep going to places you don't see yourself, it affects everything. For sure. I think, I mean, that's, 
one of the main premises for the podcast, Absolutely. right, is to to show possibility models for young women so they could see that they can have these jobs um, that those of us that are in the industry have. And and also, you know, to show the multidimensional people we are, you know, it, we may have to be really tough exteriors when we're um, at work, you know, in the middle, in the thick of it. But yeah, I mean, you and I could talk all day about dogs and yeah. and the different baby voices we use anytime we see one, you know, like I've had people in my workplace um, not know where whatever came out of my mouth, the sound that came out of my mouth when I saw an infant was. Right. And they just all looked at me like an alien had invaded me right. because, you know, I get all squealy about them. I just can't help it. <laughs> I was once asked for Entrepreneur Magazine, um, you know, about about leadership and and transparency and and I still hold true to this but while I may say I have this certain way I have to interact when it comes to my team the people that work in my department they get the same carry that my friends get Mm -hmm. you know a little bit different you know obviously I have have direct reports and stuff but I am the same person in that I'm consistent in how I'm flawed you know right yeah I mean I mean I have some salty language uh I might get worked up about something, but uh, that doesn't, I don't feel that I have to comport myself in my direct workplace. It's really when dealing with people outside, you know, sure. the, the media members, the commissioners, the the folks that come from the spaces, especially on the college side, the really rigid stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm that one that anytime I'm in a meeting and I might be the only female and that happens a lot in college athletics, uh, still. Right. Um, I will pull that chair up, even though I might have been later to the meeting and I'm supposed to sit in one of those crappy chairs against the wall. Uh, I'll pull it up to the table and I'll say, hey, boys, you know, token estrogen here. Let's get going. And I'll make a joke, but I will let them know. I know I'm not sitting up against the wall. I'm going to be right up here next to you. And these are the kinds of things that um, I, I just they're little tips away at it. But I think it's important to just keep putting yourself in those spaces. Right. I don't think. I really don't, haven't found a lot of men I deal with are against it, but I think we, a lot of women think there's this like invisible barrier that they can't be, they can't do those types of things because it's rude, or they're just concerned with being polite. And I just, I'm not, I'm not held by that. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't have that mental guard up. Well, I mean, that probably goes back to your, you know, your, your parents yeah. getting you into sports and your gym teacher when you were so young. You know, some of us had teachers who told us that ladies don't act a certain way. And right. Mm. Oh, I used to hate when the teacher would say, boys, come. We have new textbooks. Can you guys come and carry the book? <laughs> and then they and I'd be like right up there with them because I was like, I'd say to the teacher, well, I'm I want to carry books. <laughs> like, why do the boys the only like girls can't carry textbooks? I mean, how weak do you think we are? Uh, those kinds of things even. Oh yeah. And I, I can tell you, yes, it was my mother. It was always like, nobody's going to, you, know, you don't, no one can do anything better than you can do it, Carrie, just because you're a girl. But I do remember even in junior high, like some boys were picking on me about a, fr- a friend that I had a falling out with and they were singing like, I hate Carrie Potts, like a song. <laughs> I called my dad saying my stomach hurt and I made him come pick me up. And then I told my dad actually what was going on. And he said, you are going right back to school. And if 
that kid's death does one thing to you, you punch him in the face. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I went back to gym. I remember I went back to gym class and Seth was saying awful things to me and I turned around and popped him one. And um, I know we wouldn't, again, nowadays not tell children to do that, but right. um, but it was making me feel threatened. Sure. That they were like, you know, getting me at my locker and teasing me. After that, I never had another problem. Um, so I had parents that were like, just get back in there, Carrie, and just go swing it. Like, get in there and be unapologetic. And so, yes, I'm lucky. Again, I'm totally lucky. And I don't take any credit for it. I can't, you know, that's a roll of the dice that you wind up with that shapes you when you're younger. Sure. And where I am now, like, I don't have it all figured out. No woman does. But just don't be intimidated by it. Men, it, you know how you give someone all this power, yep. you assign all these things to them, and then, again, like the Wizard of Oz, and then it turns out it's just like an old dude behind <laughs> this curtain with, like, a with like a lever right it's sort of the same thing yeah i mean i think once you start to see people in their humanity right and not yeah, just as yeah. these i don't know gods or goddesses that that are so different right these mental constructs we have mm -hmm. that are totally false right just because someone's a commissioner oh he's he doesn't walk on water he's flawed he might you know made up poor table manners i've seen some of that i mean, I mean just <laughs> like it doesn't mean you're immune to all these other things sure uh you know might have you know one of them like this guy this one guy well you got he's got really bad breath or he has like bad height you know, whatever you know everyone's human and title is not we love to like assign all these other traits to someone's title mm -hmm. and it's ridiculous the end of the day just sock goes on one foot sock goes on the other foot you know totally flawed I mean, if there's nothing else that breaks down the um, the title game now, you know, to like the fact that they're just yes, people. I know it's where we're going. It's where we are right now with, with right. who's leading, you know, our country. And listen, right. listeners, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I try to keep the politics out, but um, it, yeah, I, it's been interesting for me being in sport uh, the last two and a half years. And um interacting oh this is gonna be fun there's a there's a an ice you know those ice cream truck things yeah they, which by yeah. the way are so freaking creepy um yeah i would not go eat anything there unless it was free wrap no well yeah of course but it, it's just even the the song is creepy to me at, at this age and it just i'm sure that's going to be in the background of this anyway um you know being in sport the last two and a half years and and interacting with these you know, amazing athletes and coaches and, and things like that. You, you just, it reminds you as you get to know them, that they're people. And at the end of the day, you know, yep. we're just living in a world full of people and being able to connect with people on a, a humanity level is, is how, you know, I got my job. It's how we don't have war, <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, and and then you do you get to, you know, you can laugh at at I don't know, your head coach who is, yeah. you know, s slightly sarcastic and really funny and you wouldn't know it sometimes or, you know, the number one player on your team and how goofy he can be like these are. Well, the sooner you can get that lesson, any woman that's listening that might be young. Um, I'm not. Um, the sooner you can get that lesson, absorb the lesson of that people are people and putting all these restrictions on them about 
or, or all these attributes that really just restrict you and right. hurt you because then you, then you aren't good at who you are. You, you limit yourself. You place all these false limitations on yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I learned a lesson very early on, uh, both with, I was the staff assistant for coach Bayheim at Syracuse, one of my summers. And mm-hmm. we had just gone to the final four in 96. So I was so nervous, um, about him. And when he finally was in the office, you know, a few weeks after I started, you know, I, he called me in and I was like shaking. And then, you know, he just asked me, oh, do you want to get some lunch? I need to go get stamps. Like, yeah. so like, oh, Coach Bayheim buys his own stamps. Like, oh, you know, <laughs> totally. Did, and he was just driving the school issued Bonneville, you know, right. like, like totally just, you know, he had beanie, beanie bag babies. His Be- wife had them like, with, yeah, with little glasses on it. They had the Bayheim beanie baby. It was just, Stuff like that made me go, oh my God, I had no idea. And then my first job at the NCA, I, my committee member for that volleyball rules book was the former head coach at Nebraska, Terry Pettit. Well, I, you could have put any celebrity in front of me and I would not have cared, but Terry Pettit was such a, like, and I, in my mind, he was such a big deal when I was coming up through volleyball. Mm -hmm. He had he had trained all these Olympians, Lori Endicott, the setter for the U.S. national team, where I was a sweat wiper, was a Nebraska Husker, like such an iconic program. They had their own gym with statues. They get 12,000 people to come watch. You know, I was, I could hardly talk. He was the chair. They named him chair of my committee. And in my first meeting with him, I was sweating. <laughs> I, I, right. So this is like my Tom Cruise or my whatever that whoever says, oh, I never right. met that celebrity. And and then when you're a committee liaison, you find out all the foibles, right? All mm-hmm. the uh, little flaws. And I learned with Terry, he was nervous about conflict. He didn't want people on the committee to not like a decision he made. Because when you're a head coach, the kids are the ones that have to take your decision. Right. When you're a head coach with, with commissioners and other head coaches on a committee, like you're not going to get the same kind of feedback when you make an edict. Mm-hmm. And, and so what I learned from that, and Terry, I became friends and he's been a great mentor and, a, and someone I share stuff with, like, oh, that was the greatest lesson. These are just people living life. And the sooner you can learn that, the better it is going to be for you, no matter who you deal with, no matter how big the person seems that mm-hmm. you have to go up against. And they will treat you better because of it. And then you will be more successful at whatever your job is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and I think being authentically yourself is helpful too. I mean, yeah. One of the people that I have built a really great relationship with at my organization, I did not realize (laughs) until I'm not kidding, like a good eight months after I started, um, I didn't realize he was on our Super Bowl winning team and that there's a statue of him in our lobby, Um, mostly because the statue doesn't look like him. But he and I would just goof off and joke around and he you know very quickly became one of my favorite people at the organization and you know i had no clue and had i known from the get-go i don't know that i would you know i hope that i would have still just been myself right but i can i can definitely imagine six years ago i i wouldn't have i would have been nervous i would have you know probably just tried to like fit in and and here it is. I'm just myself. And, you know, I see him walking around before a game one day wearing one of the rings. And I'm like, what are you doing? What do you think you are? Big time? 
And he looks at me and the guy friend I'm with goes, you realize he was on the Super Bowl team, right? <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing, though. I, but I bet, though, that that person so enjoys the interactions with you because they're not used to getting that. They get the people that, like, choke up or sure. act different or, mm-hmm. you know, hee, 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 hee. And, oh, you know, the, it's just what we do as people. We've just been taught right. that that's what you do. And I have always been told, you know, I have a friend who's in music and she will bring me to concerts and, you know, business stuff with her. And I don't know half the people in <laughs> that, okay, in the music business. And so I will sit there with someone and be like, oh, what are you doing? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, I'm playing a band. Oh, a band, you know, n- clueless. Walking right. away. You know, that's so-and-so in the Black Crows. No, no idea. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Like, but <laughs> I did learn that he liked vegan, whatever, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> talking about what he was eating um yeah those are your best moments you know and i again it's it's sports you're gonna be up against celebrity and, and big names all the time and a lot of it is just this, like artificial creation of our mind mm-hmm. oh yeah for sure for sure i mean there are some listen there are going to be some organizations that like like you've talked about that keep that hierarchy right that keep that that divide mm-hmm. right and they want that they, right right And I agree with you. I mean, for me, it's (laughs) it it creates more anxiety for me in terms of like how I interact with those people. Thank you to Carrie for agreeing to be on LTPF. We had such a great conversation and um, part two is going to be next week. Like I said at the outset, it is a difficult but important conversation next week. We talk about um, an assault that she experienced when she was in Italy and what she did to try and uh, bring justice to the situation. Um, It, I think, is important for both men and women to listen to, but... I say that with the full knowledge that some of you will have experienced sexual or violent trauma. And if it is best for your self-care not to listen to that episode, you please don't listen to it. You you do not have to listen to it. And um, I won't be offended if you don't. Uh, I just want you to do what is going to be best for you. Everyone else, I really do hope that you you listen to it. It's going to be a little tough, but... um, like I said, it's so important. And big thank you to all of you. Once again, uh, I this week was a little late. I had some technical difficulties with my microphone, and um, it took an extra day to get this out. But thanks to Jerry and Jason at RadioInfluence.com for always being there for me and helping me try and figure these things out since I am such a newbie. So as always, I would really appreciate it if you could go rate and review this podcast. It is so helpful for rankings and trying to get in front of new people and new listeners, um, which is always the goal. And subscribe, obviously, um, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or RadioInfluence.com. And you can follow us on social media. For the podcast, everything is at LTPF Pod. So that's on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I am at Bobby Sue on Twitter and the website is ltpfpod.com. Although bear with me, I am just not that great at it and tend to be behind by an episode or two, but I am working on it. I promise. Um, 
Other than that, feel free to email me uh, at ltpfpod at gmail.com. I've had a few of you do so in the last week or two, and I've really appreciated all of your words. Um, I, it is, it's great to get feedback, positive and negative. Uh, tell me how I can do better. I'm trying to learn as I go. And as you can tell, the technical stuff isn't easy for me. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I want to make sure this is a valuable um, part of your life. And if there's something I could do, or if you have recommendations on people you want me to interview, um, and you happen to know those people and want to make an intro, please feel free. Uh, next week, we'll be back. I hope you all have a great rest of your week and um, see you then. Bye. Hey, you guys, it's me, the fabulous sports babe. How wonderful is that? I'm on Radio Influence. I'm on iTunes. I'm on Stitcher. And it's on a bunch of stuff that I can't get on my phone because I don't figure out how to do it. But if you want to do that, you get my lovely podcast now. You can go and do this. You can be mowing the lawn. You can go into the moon. You can do any of that stuff, and you can listen to the fabulous sports babe. I have a lot of people to talk to because, after all, that's what I do is just annoy them all the time. It's the fabulous sports babe. It's right here on Radio Influence.